0: God's love from Hosea, from the book of Hosea. Over the last couple of weeks we have been looking at some of the the minor prophets. Please note that they are only called minor because of the size of the book. Not minor when it comes to their message or their influence. Not in the time that they lived and not the time since, not the time after. Like all of scripture, Hosea's message is just as alive and applicable today as it was 2700 years ago. He is called, Hosea is called, the prophet of divine love. His name, Hosea, means deliverance. He, he was a prophet who lived and prophesied just before the destruction of Israel in the 8th century and Israel was the northern kingdom, the ten tribes of the northern kingdom because remember by this stage the, the kingdom of Israel was split between Judah in the south and the ten tribes uh, in the north. He, preached, he was called to preach to the northern kingdom and throughout the book he refers to Israel and Ephraim concurrently. So sometimes he calls them Israel and sometimes he calls them Ephraim because the tribe of Ephraim was the largest, most powerful tribe and they basically represented the the norm. Chaotic. Chaotic would be the best way to describe his age. Not unlike ours. Moral values were up for grabs. People didn't know whether they were coming or going, who was Arthur or Martha, that type of stuff. Perhaps they didn't struggle with who was male and female in those days, which is stuff that we struggle today. His ministry extended over more than 60 years. He was a long time on the job and was perhaps the longest serving of any of the prophets. Four out of six kings during his time had been murdered during the years that Hosea prophesied. Allegiances were made with foreign kingdoms more powerful than Israel. That's what he sort of did in order to protect your sovereignty. A bit like A treaty that Australia might form with the US or with the UK and and that type of stuff. Allegiances were made hoping to save the, the, the nation and hoping to protect them from any foreign invaders. Principles of ethics and justice were compromised. Instability and discord ruled. There was crime and robbery everywhere. There was no peace on the land. The priests, if you went to the temple, the priests were unfaithful. Hosea continually intoned one word. His message was one word which sounds really bad today and I'm sure it sounded pretty bad then. Is basically whoredom. So basically Israel was prostituting themselves is the way that Hosea would describe it. And can you blame him? He didn't mince his words. Surely someone who lived through so much would have an important message for us to share in the midst of the spiritual and moral chaos in which we live and in which we bring up our children and grandchildren and they will have to live. His message is not only important because it was given by God but made all the more real because it was lived in his own life, in his own family. This is where things get really, really personal. One, if you look at the life of the prophets, you have to admire them for performing a task so, so thankless, so sacrificially lonely, heartbreaking, with virtually no visible rewards. That was the life of a prophet. So, what can Hosea teach us? We're going to look at just take glimpses from the book of Hosea and try and, and, and summarize it under three headings. Remember that the overarching theme is the love of God, the prophet of divine love. But we're going to divide it into three parts. First of all, what is it going to teach us? Well, that we need to learn. First of all, we need to learn from history. Learn from history. German philosopher Hegel once said that the problem with history is that we learn nothing from history. Most nations and people learn little, if anything, from the mistakes of those who had gone before. We keep, for some reason, want to repeat the same wrongs and errors because we somehow convinced ourselves that it's going to be different this time, not like last time. On the other hand, I'm sure that even in Hosea's day there were those who probably reminisced about the good old days saying in the past we never had these problems. They sort of put put on their rose coloured glasses and idealised or even idolised the past without critically assessing it. So, Hosea looks at this bleak age and then examines the character of one of the great names in Hebrew history, the patriarch Jacob. We had a a very extensive look at Jacob in our series in Genesis last year. And Hosea linked the situation of his own 8th century to that ancient patriarch Jacob. And this is what he says in chapter 12. Chapter 12, he says... In verses 2-5, to five, the Lord has a charge to bring against Judah. He will punish Jacob according to his ways and repay him according to his deeds. And he looks at, at Jacob and he looks back at Genesis and in the womb he grasped his brother's heel. As a man he struggled with God. He struggled with the angel and overcame him he wept and begged for his favour. He found him at Bethel and talked with him there. The Lord God Almighty, the Lord is his name. And here Jacob, rather than being idolised as the great patriarch, is seen as self-seeking, greedy, cruel, dishonest, struggling, against God and against those around him. It even started in the womb. The tribe of Ephraim in Hosea's time was, I suppose, like an exact replica of of, of Jacob, this conniving cheat. Hosea listed all the flaws of Jacob's character and alongside he he placed those of his own people in his day, basically saying, You are just like your forefather who bore the name Israel. You're just like your great, 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 great great granddaddy. It appears that the fruit doesn't fall too far from the tree after all. In another, I love the colours and the, the, the metaphors that Hosea uses. The images that he brings in another colourful admonition is when he wrote wrote that Ephraim had become in in chapter 7 verse 8, a flat loaf not turned over. (laughs) A flat loaf not turned over. In today's terminology he would have said he's half-baked. The the people were like a pancake burned on one side but raw on the other. Turn it over son. Although they they, they took advantage of, of, of the Lord's goodness they certainly enjoyed the Lord's goodness, the Lord's blessing upon them. They didn't seek him with their heart. When they needed the Lord's help, they started turning to other sources. In chapter 7, verses 10 to 11, Israel's arrogance testifies against him. But despite all this, he does not return to the Lord his God or search for him. Ephraim is like a dove, easily deceived and senseless, now calling to Egypt, now turning to Assyria. What remedy then was there for such chaos? They had become tasteless, useless to God, and judgment therefore was inevitable. We have to learn from history. And no, not look at it with rose coloured glasses but critically assess it. Learn from the bad, take the good and continue on. Learn from history. Secondly, we need to learn from life. While the nation was in disarray, God was going to use his servant Hosea like he used the other prophets as a demonstration of the spiritual condition of the land. And though the other prophets that God called like Ezekiel had to really, you know, like laying on one side and some of them had to run naked and and all of that stuff God called them to do, all these weird stuff, as a message, as a visual demonstration, like a show and tell before the land, the what God asked Hosea to do is, 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 is remarkable. And it's actually a little bit hard to take. Because it shocks us. In his day, based with all the challenges that are out there, just think about it how are we living in Australia now? Many opted for a private faith that disengaged from the rest of society. Pray, follow the principles of faith, forget the state. Because you don't want, let, you don't want to let everybody know that you're a Christian, that you follow God, that you actually believe in something out there. Forget the rest of the world just turn inward. Spend quality time in the tiny circle of your own life. Just follow God in your own way, and don't worry too much about everybody else, because you know what you know. You know that you're going to get hurt if you try and move out and tell everybody else about Jesus and try to live your Christian life in the world outside. Don't even try. And if you start mixing with people and all of that, you know what people are like. In this respect, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote, he said, and I quote, To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be, be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your own selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The only place outside heaven where you can perfectly be safe from all the dangers of love is actually hell. End of quote. It's quite telling, isn't it? From all the hurts in your life, do you ever be intent to just, you know, go in? Wrap yourself in a cocoon and say, that's it, I'm going to lock myself up from the rest of the the world, of society, because it's too hard. Others cast their lots with the political system, with kings and monarchies and leaders and political movements. They believe that real, lasting change would only come from public life, public involvement. That uh, if you influence those in power, then we can get the right moral laws, and we can we can get everybody doing the, the is right thing. If they don't do right, then we're just going to punish them, lock them up, get rid of all the dirt and filth in our society, and then we'll be right. Many look outside and blame the politicians for all of the difficulties that we go through. These politicians, they know nothing. And you're probably right. sad thing is that they're a representation of us. Remember, again, I'll go back to this, remember that Hosea is the story of God's faithful love for his unfaithful people. In what seems really strange and I'll go back to that. God told him to marry a prostitute. I know the NIV cleans it up a little bit but the, the real word there is to go and marry a whore, a prostitute. Ma'am, what's a prostitute? I oh, know, you can explain it later. This was instrumental in his training and calling and message. I think, what? You wouldn't, you wouldn't. Surely, go and check the message again, Hosea, because surely you got the wrong, you know, up the wrong message, yeah. You can't. That can't possibly be God's will. You you wouldn't even ask your kids to, to do that. I'm saying, really. <clears throat> There's a lot of fish in this sea. I'm sure you can find a better girl somewhere. Not only that. Okay, even if you marry someone who lived and worked as a prostitute, I'm saying, after she's married, then she'll be faithful and a good wife for the rest of her life. No! She goes back to that life, even while they're married. She breaks her marriage vows, brings grief to him. Listen to verses one, chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, he said to him, go marry a prostitute who will bear illegitimate children conceived through Prostitution because the nation continually commits spiritual prostitution by turning away from the Lord. The Lord is the faithful husband and Israel never really abandoned the Lord. It's just that they like to go to every, with everybody else as well. To all these idols, all these Baals and everything else. Her name was Goma. She had a child with him but then had children with others. Eventually she deserved Hosea for other men and probably sold herself to a pimp or some, some kind like that. And then the Lord told Hosea to go and buy her back, redeem her back. After Everything she's done after having to basically bring up the kids on his own and all of that, you've got to go bring this woman back and say, you're kidding me, right? Really? Lord, I didn't sign up for this. This is too much. And I'm sure the rest of the family is like, you're an idiot. You're a fool. In your own life, in what you're preaching and everything else, how? No. Look, this is impossible. I can't understand why you would put up with this. He experienced firsthand what was happening. He was experiencing firsthand in his own life what the heart of God was like. The lessons that he was living in his own life was the lesson, was what God was going through with his own people. He understood how God was grieved at the wickedness of Israel. You probably think, oh, it's just, you know, I just have a wander through. Just offer a little sacrifice here and sacrifice there and all of that. So who's going to get upset? Who's going to know? Well, God knows. God cares. It breaks his heart. The sins of his wife represented the sins of Israel. Not only against God, but an insult to divine love. Why are you seeking other lovers when you have all the love you need here? So Hosea in his own life had seen the pain of the personal and the agony of the larger picture. So the prophet linked these two journeys, the the inward journey and the outward journey in in, in a beautiful way. If you look at the structure of the book and you probably want to go and read it, in chapters 1 to 3 it's the inward personal journey, as personal as you can possibly get. And in chapters 4 to 14 it's the life of the nation. The inward journey cannot be ignored. Hosea could not ignore the shambles of his own marriage, his family. Yet he also recognised that he lived in a larger world. Whatever he was going through, he had to live it in the midst of a fallen people. A fallen world. In love, and at great personal cost he did go and buy back his wayward wife, restore her, redeem her, and saw the hope, and saw the hope of the restoration and forgiveness of Israel. If if one thing we learn if we can learn anything from the experiences that we go through life, is that we are human. We are thoroughly human. Not just humans, but as the Bible constantly reminds us, fallen humans. Depraved even, in need of redemption and transformation we will sin and the people will sin against us. It's not easy to recognise this and accept it because we think, we think we're pretty good before God, before men. I'm not too bad. No. The way back is the way of repentance. Genuine repentance from the heart. Actually mean it. Just saying, I'm sorry, is not enough for humans and not enough for God either. You see the leaders of Israel in the face of the trouble brought on by their sin, they thought that merely by doing the, the prescribed sacrifices at the temple, by bringing their the calves and sheep and goats and everything else and by just doing the stuff that will keep God happy. We saw last week the message, well, well, 10,000 rivers of oil, will that make God happy? God rejected that kind of repentance that was just an outward demonstration so that everybody can see that we're going to church, that we're going to the temple, that we're offering the sacrifices, we're doing everything that's supposed to do. What else does he want now? He says to his people in chapter 6 verse 4, What can I do with you, Ephraim? What can I do with you, Judah? Kids, what am I going to do with you? Oh, you know, we've had that conversation yesterday. Here we go again. What am I going to do with you? You ever had that conversation with your kids? I never have, actually, personally, but anyway, maybe you're a better parent than I am. Your love, he says, is like the morning dew, the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. Gee, that love is everlasting, isn't it? Your love is like the morning mist, like the early dew that disappears. You, you wake up in the morning, oh, look how beautiful that everything is. It's gone. You turn around, it's gone. Gee, what happened to that? That's what some people's love is like, you know, God says. As fleeting as a morning cloud fades away the first rays of sunlight. God says in verse 6, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Get to know me. Get to know my heart. The knowledge of God. This is what we do when we come together. This is why we read his word, study his word, meditate on his word. We want to know God's heart. Know me. Repentance must result in a change of heart, a changed life, a changed behaviour. That's the godly sorrow that Paul spoke about in Corinthians, in 2 Corinthians 7:10. Godly sorrow. And lastly, we need to learn from God. This is a follow-up on our previous point: learn from God. As a prophet, Hosea was of course, ahead of his time in his understanding of the character of God because of that inward journey that revealed just how much God truly loves us. Uh, in, in, in chapter 11, we come to some of the most beautiful ter- uh, literature in all of the Old Testament. This is what God, this is what God looks like. And God speaks, uh, and, and this is what he says. He says, When Israel was a child... I loved him. And out of Egypt I call my son. Where are those verses from? In the New Testament? Sorry? In Matthew. Exactly. When Jesus and his family had to flee down to Egypt, Matthew saw this as an indication, as a a, a prophecy, as a fulfilment of prophecy. Because why? Because the infant Christ, Christ, the Messiah, was to be Israel, but more than Israel, was to be the perfect Israel. The fulfilment of all that Israel could never be. That's who Jesus was. He lived up to the expectations. In in verses 3-4, to it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. Listen, Listen to all the tenderness here. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk taking him by the arms. But they did not realise it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. And with cords, you can almost read there the umbilical cords, can't you? To them, to them I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek and I bent over, I bent down to feed them. Isn't that just so, so tender? God, it's like God taking the. We all have these in our family, by the way. It's changing, I know, because now it's digital. But in the old days, we used to have albums with photographs in them. Do you remember those? Okay. And the, the, these albums, sometimes because you know, it takes a while, we don't look at them every day, but then we sort of dust it off and begin to, to point to the pictures, and straight away our, our, our memories will click and say, wow, that's, that's what happened then. That's the idea of these photographs. And God takes these, these albums he, the scenes, the, the pictures of the Egyptian slavery, the crossing of the Red Sea, the, the journey through the wilderness the life in the tents, the eventual crossing of the river and the land of the promise and hope. There the scenes of the lush fields and the happy people, the happy times. That was in the album. But I don't know how many of us keep these pictures. Probably not in the albums, more in our memories. The ugly pictures, we don't tend to keep those. In verse 2, the pictures of Baal worship. The cruel kings and the pictures of injustice and ignoring the plight of the helpless. Pictures of foreign kings in exile and broken temples and broken hearts. And we keep coming back to the picture of God the Father Weeping over Israel's foolish mistakes and sins and heartbreaks and saying with love, in verse 8, how, how can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I give you up? I can't do it. It's the story of the, the father and the prodigal son, isn't it? When the son comes and says, Dad, just give me half everything that belongs to me, just... I want to go. I've had enough. I'm leaving. And after a while he, after all the sinning and all of that, he turns back. But the whole time, obviously the father kept waiting. The waiting father. And when when we're done with sin and tired of being lost, they messed up. We we, we know where home is. We know it. We know where home is. And we need to turn for home knowing that He is there waiting for us, our Heavenly Father. It's a picture of healing, forgiveness, just as long as we come with genuine repentance and humble hearts. This is the wondrous, amazing love of God that won't let us go even when we've walked away. Now in the midst of their sin and eventual punishment the grace of God toward his people was never exhausted. And in this, like I said, this grace-filled exhortation that Hosea lived in his own life, personally he said, in, in chapter 10 verse 12 and, and again this imagery is from agriculture. Sow righteousness for yourselves plant righteousness is what he's saying throw the seeds scatter the seeds of righteousness of doing good and you will reap the fruit of unfailing love and break up your unplowed ground for it is time to seek the Lord until he comes and showers his righteousness on you. So, spread the righteousness and he will fill it up. He will shower you. He will give you righteousness in abundance and that perfect righteousness could only be the picture of Jesus Christ on the cross. He died for us. And this is a a perfect leader for Easter, isn't it? God God who does not stop loving us whatever our situation today, irrespective of our feelings we will find forgiveness and a new start His love never fails and may we as we prepare our hearts for Easter just stop focusing please for a moment about the partying, the holidays and all the other arrangements that you're probably already doing and everything else, and start thinking about the real meaning and significance of Easter. That way, Easter becomes a lot more meaningful and precious, and it gives us an opportunity to actually talk about and discuss this with our fellow workers and others and our neighbours and others, and telling them about the greatest love of all, the love of our Lord and Saviour.